You've been with us since the beginning of the year. I think we've done it since the first Sunday in January, and so now we're first Sunday in April. We've been in the book of Galatians. Galatians has been for us quite a journey as we've gone through all of this, and we're actually finishing with the closing. We preached the introduction, we're preaching the closing, because I think they say significant things about what God is doing and how he wants us to remember this letter. So just the last few verses of Galatians is what we will be in today. And I want to start chapter 6, verse 11. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Kids, if you're following along, uh, your parents can help you find uh, the passage. But just as you go to the book, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. So you're going to find a big 6. And then after that, you're going to find a small 11, and that's how you're going to get to Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. It reads like this. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not consider or uh, do, not, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Say that, kids. Boast in your flesh. It's a funny word. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Galatians. You've been with us each Sunday, or you've listened, you've followed along, you've caught up in your reading. Uh, if you're doing the reading plan with us, our F260 New Testament, you have read, heard the book of Galatians for you this year. Now, I have some friends who are really good readers. I also have some kids who are really good readers. In my family, I am the worst reader. Uh, so people read around me in my circles a lot, and they're really good at it. And they can just kind of go, oh yeah, I remember reading this book one time, or so-and-so said this, and they did this, and they talked about this. And they can just kind of pull quotes out of nowhere, or so it seems. But they actually have some pretty good disciplines as to how they can remember, after you read a book, what it says. So, for example, I have one friend I know who, when the book is done, as he's writing through it, he actually just opens it up, and in the front cover of that book, on the inside of the front cover, he'll just write an outline of the book, significant quotes, things he wants to remember. That way, anytime he grabs the book, there it is, the information he wants to know from the book. I thought, this is genius! I learned this strategy like 12 years ago, and I have done it zero times. I have another friend who just uses Evernote, which is just kind of an online place to keep notes, and he writes summaries of books in Evernote folders. Well, it took me, again, a couple of years, but I thought between those two things, 
I'm going to try doing that. So it's been 10 or 12 years since I've actually seen people do this until I started to actually employ the idea myself. And quite honestly, it's been more helpful than I thought it would be. Um, you have to kind of stick with it, which gets a little concerning because it's not the easiest thing to remember to do. When you finish a book, you want to kind of throw it aside and say, I don't want to hear it anymore. But with this, you actually have to go back and go, what is this about? Well, as we enter into the last passage of Galatians 11 through 18 this morning, we've been looking at the book for an entire three months. 14 sermons, something like that, 14 Sundays, 15 Sundays. It's taken a big part of our year thus far. But I bet, and I'm not, this is of no fault of your own. Maybe some of you are geniuses who are following along, but I bet some of you have a hard time remembering what the second half of Galatians 2 is about, or the first half of Galatians 3, or the first seven verses of Galatians 4. They, they all get, get jumbled together. And we go, what could I remember from Galatians? Well, I think as we go into this passage, 11 through 18, we're actually going to be able to see some of the significant lessons from Galatians for us. Now, just like any letter has a close or any kind of a concluding idea, it wasn't uncommon for authors to have their introduction where they introduce themselves and then close it on out. Sometimes with words to people, uh, hey, I'm going to come see you soon. We've seen Paul say something like, prepare a guest room for me before in his letters. Uh, so there is that kind of interaction. But we're going to go through four ideas that show up in the first or in these last few verses, 11 through 18. Now, with that, I'm going to have to help you, you know, I'm going to explain what I mean when I use these phrases. So we're going to start with verse 11. And with verse 11, what I'm going to say to you is this, take the gospel seriously. And you go, of course I do. Of course I do. But let me explain what I mean by that and how I can even see that in verse 11. First idea, take the gospel seriously. Verse 11 says this, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hands. Well, everyone writes letters with their own hand, don't they? Everyone takes it and kind of goes, here's what I say. But no, that actually wasn't the case. I'm going to give you a new word. The word is amanuensis. Amanuensis. It's somebody who would actually write as a person like Paul would be speaking. And what happens is they would dictate this letter, and then they would kind of go, and they would check and go, okay, this is right, this is how I would say it. People do this today, don't they? They kind of say, this is what I would want to say. Well, at this point in the letter, as Paul has been dictating it, saying it to somebody, this would usually be one of his ministry partners, uh, and they would be writing it, he actually takes over, and he go, he grabs the pen, and he says, see with what large letters... I am writing to you. So have you ever been in a situation where somebody in the room with you is on the phone? Now, I know this is going to cause anxiety for you, maybe for me, but you're trying to tell the person on the phone what to tell the person they're talking to. So in a sense, you're kind of one step removed from the conversation, you know what I'm talking about? And so you're just like, oh! Finally, in a bout of frustration, you go, you know what, give me the phone, give me the phone. Hey, this is what I need you to hear. You've kind of cut out, in a sense, the middleman, and you've gone, I need to do this. Well, this is exactly what Paul is doing. <clears throat> it's not that the message that he has said for chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are wrong, but he takes a moment at the end to say, listen, 
I need you to hear directly from me on this. That's what's going on. Uh, there's a phrase where you go, I have the con, right? I'm in control. And so Paul is taking the pen and he is saying, Galatians, hear me. I need you to understand how serious this is. That's what's going on. So in this final moment, Paul wants the Galatians to know just how important the message is that he has been saying that someone else has been writing. And we need to do that. So what would he want to emphasize? Well, he want to emphasize just how important it is to be sure that we understand that salvation comes only through God, the death of Christ on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins purchased, that we, through faith, can enter into a relationship with God, become children of God. That is uh, what has been spoken this entire time. It is important, Paul would say, that you understand this, and I'm going to take over and write this down right now. It is important that we understand how futile or unnecessary and even harmful it is for us to add work to the equation of our salvation. And he's going to then change and kind of pivot to his discussion of the Judaizers in just a moment with that. It is essential to be sure that our attitude towards our other brothers or sisters is one of love, Talked about that last week. What does love actually look like in the life of a church? How does living by the Spirit demonstrate itself? And it happens through relationships. So how does one live that out? There are plenty of times, and I have to live with it, you have to live with it, when we're misunderstood. And then there are other times where we have to say, with an insane, incredible amount of clarity, hear me on this. This is what I mean. So that doesn't mean that every time you have to kind of go be uh, a holy warrior and just going and correcting everything somebody says, but on the issues of significance that pertain to salvation, you want to be sure that things are clear. You have to be clear about the gospel. See with what large letters I am writing. Hear me out. This entire letter has been one where he has hammered the importance of the work of Jesus for us and not the work of us for us. And so we have to take that seriously as brothers and sisters together. In verses 12 and 13, he's going to show the seriousness with contrast. <clears throat> he's going to go back to the Judaizers. Now, who were the Judaizers? If you're just tuning in with us, the Judaizers were the group of people. It's a name that we have given to them. As they are into the Galatian church, and they're trying to teach the Galatians that there's a way that they should behave that God really likes and approves of, and that is a way of doing work, actually adding on the Mosaic law to how they operate. Now, for us today, many of us are Gentiles, meaning... We aren't Jewish, we don't have a Jewish background, and so the Mosaic Law doesn't mean a lot to us. But we all understand the idea of doing certain things so that God could like us more. We feel like we need to pray so that God could approve of us. It's actually a conversation we were having with uh, in our family recently. Do you feel like prayer is something that you have to do in order to get to what you want to do? 
You know what I mean? Like, we have to pray before we eat because we want to pray. We have to pray before bed because we want to, you know, finish our day. We have to pray here because we want this certain thing to happen. And if you're not careful, this is why we try to talk about it as a family, then you equate doing something, prayer, with God's necessary response to you. We have to do this so that this can happen. Or we have to do this, and if we don't, this won't happen. So we still have these sneaky ways that law will creep in. <clears throat> Even though we don't understand or fully kind of grab onto the Mosaic law, we all have ways that we will operate with the law in mind. So the first idea, take gospel clarity seriously, comes in with a compare and contrast between the Judaizers in verses 11, or 12 and 13 and Paul's behavior in verses 14, 15, and 16. So we start with the Judaizers who compromise. And we'll say this, recognize, recognize that compromising, I mean compromising in light of faith in Jesus, compromising, giving somewhere, is uh, exposes hypocrisy. He's going to talk directly about the Judaizers in this. So he's going to start with them. What have we seen the Judaizers doing? They go, sure, Jesus is great. We're not against Jesus. We think Jesus is wonderful. We just think you need to add the law. And when you add the law, then you're in. Verses 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you, force you to be circumcised, which would be the sign of the old covenant. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now there's a lot of words going on here, but this is what it would mean. The Judaizers want the Galatian church to follow the law. If they're Gentiles and they haven't been circumcised, it's a sign of that law keeping. They want them to get circumcised. Even though, even though they know they can't follow the law. They just want to avoid persecution. Why would they be avoiding persecution? Because they're saying nothing's changed. There's no significant change. Paul, on the other hand, has faced significant persecution for his view that justification, being right with God, comes by grace and through faith, and only faith can we be brought into a relationship with God through the work of Jesus. That message has caused him in many situations to be beaten, to be harmed, to be mocked, to be stoned, to be laughed at, to be chased down. That's been going on in Paul's life, and the Judaizers are trying to avoid that, but still look holy, still look like they have it together. And that's the phrase he uses. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to look put together, even though they're not. This is a concern I have for everybody listening. Is that we want to present something that is significantly better than we are. We want to present lives that look like we're all okay. We want to present lives that seem as if God is with us, we're crushing it, we're quoting books, we're quoting Spurgeon, we're quoting Bible verses, we're quoting everything we possibly can to show that we're okay. 
and we're not okay. And we have to die to that desire to have a good showing in the flesh because it accomplishes for us zero. In fact, exposes hypocrisy because all we're really trying to do is look put together. Friends, we aren't. We aren't put together. One of the hardest lessons that we have to learn and keep learning is that the gospel message itself shows us that we are not okay. That we have significant need. The Judaizers, they want to avoid persecution. They want to avoid being mocked. They want their system to fit in with their world. They want how they operate to change very little about their lives. They want God to kind of approve of it, think it's okay, and just go, yeah, we're good, and the people around them to approve of it. But they're weaseling their way out of loving Jesus and instead making it appear like they love Jesus. The person who says, I have gone to church every day since the doors were opened. There's never been a time I haven't been able to be there. First, that's probably not true. Second, if it is, that's crazy. You should get a badge of some kind, but you probably already got it. But third, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't show us something. We think it does, right? We think it shows us something. But we have to be really cautious at what being put together actually communicates. Because as people in this world, we often look at exterior to define how somebody's doing. But that's not where the Lord looks, is it? Another thing that scares me about the Judaizers is this. They actually know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Are they mistaken? Yes. Are they false teachers? Yes. But they're aware. They know they aren't honoring Jesus, even though they're acting like they are. They simply want to have numbers on the wall. Verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Look at the amount of people who have agreed with our teaching. Look at how they have viewed it. Look at our converts. Look at the people who think this is right. Clearly, clearly this is a good thing. It's not a good thing. They know what they're doing. Such a ridiculous effort means this, that all the Judaizers are really concerned about are their numbers and their look. They're not concerned about our Lord. But numbers and look are incredibly attractive to us. We love fast-growing, excitable, dynamic, interesting, well-put-together churches with well-put-together people. Come on, I know you guys. I'm one of you. We think being put together is awesome. No one, no one is sitting around posting the ugliest pictures of themselves on social media, except for maybe one, two, three, or four of you, and you know who you are, right? The least flattering uh, as possible. We always want to present something better. We want uh, church websites that are dynamic and good-looking. We want to be able to boast in our numbers and look at what increased here and look at what increased here. And if something decreased, we want to have to go, well, the reason that it decreased is what? Is what? So often we want to make a good showing in the flesh. 
We want people to think that we have it together. We want people to think that we know what we're doing. But honestly, all we can really do in the Lord is look back and go, look what God has done. I couldn't do it. I can't make people go from darkness to light. I can make people go from sad to happy. I can make people go from not attending sometimes to attending. I can make people go from uh, a little down in the dumps, like Saturday. See, I said Saturday, but like a little just kind of discouraged to encouraged from not serving to serving. There's all these kind of moves that we can make, but we can't do death to life. However, we're thinking like Judaizers, we're not as concerned about death to life. We're concerned about the numbers and how the transition actually looks. That's not what we need. That's not what we want. That's not what helps. What we want to avoid at all costs, every single one of you, what we want to avoid at all costs is this, to get to the end of our lives and be able to say, look what I did. That's what the Judaizers are concerned about right now, to get to the end of their lives and say, look what I did. But what's the opposite? It should be clear. The opposite is this, to get to the end of our lives and go, look what God did. Couldn't do that. Even the fruit that is born in my life, that is born of the Spirit, even that fruit is from the Lord. Not from me, because it comes from the Spirit that He placed in me. I didn't put the Spirit in me. I didn't make the Spirit bear fruit. That's the work of God for us. And so when we start to... Uh, highlight, exaggerate, talk about all these maybe false fruits or fleshly ways of operating, we're robbing the Lord of His glory and His honor. So that compromise that we make exposes our hypocrisy. So take gospel clarity seriously. Recognize, number two, recognize that compromising exposes our hypocrisy. But then third, we see Paul contrasting his own life with what the Judaizers have done. What I say is this, boast only in the cross. Boast. Try to spell that word right now if your kids sitting with your parents. Boast. What do you think? B-O-A-S-T. Like roast, but with a B. So what's the opposite? The opposite is to boast. And in verses 14, 15, and 16, he's going to show this action. 14 and 15, he talks about his behavior. 16, he talks about how all who follow in this way receive peace and mercy of God. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So the contrast, far be it from me, Paul says, is to boast and accept in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus. The Judaizers didn't boast in the cross. They weren't interested in the actual saving work of Jesus on the cross for our sins. They boast in the flesh. This idea just really means to take pride in, to be glad about, to speak about. Paul had nothing that he could boast about other than the work of God. He takes pride in Jesus. The work of Jesus on the cross for us. 
Remember back in chapter 2, Paul says, I have been crucified in Christ. With Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, that means in the body in this instance. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's hard at times to think little of this world, to have been crucified to the world and its attraction and the things that we love about it. The Judaizers knew this. They made you want to feel like you were missing out on something. And there are times you might feel this way too. Here's an example. There are times you might feel like God needs you to behave in order to receive love. And this could come for many reasons, but one of them is maybe that's the parenting environment that you grew up in. Act a certain way, receive a certain thing. If not that, that's clearly the employment that you might be a part of because, right, you get wages. You work, you're paid. And so it becomes almost natural for us to apply the idea that God needs something from me so that I can get something from him. But that's not how it works. There are times you might feel as if God has left you because God, uh, your life isn't orderly enough. So because I don't have the right look, because I haven't showed up to church in the right amount of time, because my kids aren't as behaved as some other people's kids, because whatever it might be, there are times where we might feel as if God is not happy with me. God is mad at me. Because we haven't, what? Cleaned up our lives enough. Friends, that's not the case. For those who are in Christ, God's love for you is constant. The fact, even if you're not in Christ today, even if you don't have faith in Jesus, hear me. The fact that Christ came into this world, the Son of God was sent into this world and died, shows God's love for you. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. And so to think that God has removed himself from us because we haven't done the right thing is a mistake. It's a mistake. There are times you might even feel like your church, or Hans, or Matt, or Matt, or Yuri. You might feel like we disagree with something that you've done. Or you feel your church disagrees with some way that you operate because you didn't win Bible trivia. You can't keep up with your Bible memory. It's kind of hard right now. I'm always lagging a couple of verses behind, it seems, on that Sermon on the Mount. Or you aren't doing keto. All kinds of reasons you might think that your church is mad at you. All of those reasons need to be crushed in light of what God has done for us in Christ. Who we are in Christ. And what he says about us. And what he declares about us. God's approval of you isn't based upon your work. It's based upon Christ's work. His saving grace isn't applied only when you do the right thing and then removed when you don't. It's applied because of faith in Jesus. All of us, all of us like when others approve of us. We like when others sign off on, on our behavior. We like to be liked by others. However, you can hear Paul in this line right here. What is he saying? I'm going to boast only in Jesus. He's saying this, I know what Jesus has done for me, 
And I know how he views me. And that's sufficient. That's fine. What's the result of this perspective? How does it change us? Well, Paul doesn't just talk about how it benefits him, but then in verse 16, he talks about how it benefits us. And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. I think that part's pretty easy. For all who walk by this rule, for all who live by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, who boast in the work of Jesus, not in the flesh, for all who abide by this, peace and mercy be upon, upon him, upon her, upon them. And, and there's this ad, upon the Israel of God. So the rule means this way of thinking or this behavior. Those who make boasting in the cross their rule of life are recipients of God's peace and his mercy. And then the verse ends with a unique phrase which you can find nowhere else, the Israel of God. Peace and mercy on all who believe this and also the Israel of God. So for those following along at home, remember this. Israel is the nation that God chose to bring His promised Messiah through. We can go back into Genesis. Father Abraham. Abraham is mentioned in Galatians chapter 3. The promise of Abraham comes to us. So all the way back into Genesis chapter 12, we see God call somebody, and through that person there's going to be a nation, there's going to be blessing, and the whole world will be blessed through this person. That person is Abraham that God calls, the then blessing comes through the work of Jesus, which we see in Galatians chapter 3. The nation from which Jesus comes is Israel. Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is an Israelite. Jesus followed the law. This was Jesus' life. This was the air he breathed while he was operating on this earth. So then to have this phrase, the Israel of God, tied to the back end of this kind of seems funny, doesn't it? So... There are a few options on how to take this. One, two, and three. I'm going to help you out here. Uh, number one, they would just say that this, reply, this idea or this phrase applies to everybody. The Israel of God is the church. It's Jews, it's Gentiles. Remember, there's kind of two distinct groups that Paul has said is one. This group are one now. So it could be that. Peace and mercy upon us to the Israel of God. And so that would mean everybody who is listening right now is a recipient of this message. So that could be... Reason number one. Here's the biggest problem with that reason. Paul never talks about Israel in a way other than as a nation. So he always talks about the people. Even in the book of Romans, he's talking back about how God is going to use this nation. How he wishes that he, Paul, could be accursed for his entire people. And so you would have to change drastically the way that Paul would use this wording. And the funny thing is, now think about this, Galatians is one of Paul's earliest letters, if not his earliest letter. So with that in mind, to add an idea, a theological idea that gets no more development in any of the other letters, and in fact seems to have statements after he has written Galatians that go against what he would be doing here, doesn't make a ton of sense. So some people would take that, and I would understand why, but they... They, uh, I think it misses the, the part about how Paul talks about Israel. Number two, another way this could go is that Paul's talking about believing Jews. Believing Jews, meaning those who have put their faith in Jesus, who are from Judaism, they are recipients of God's peace and mercy as well. Now, working against this view is the fact that throughout Galatians, Paul has spent a lot of time talking about how there's one group. 
He does this also in the book of Ephesians. There's one group. Israel of God. Could it be everybody? Could it be believing Jews? Or the final view, which kind of helps, and these all come from a, an article that I could share with you if anybody wants it, is an extension of idea number two, but it focuses on the future redemption of Israel at the return of Jesus. Those who will believe by faith receive God's peace and mercy. And the view also makes sense. All three of these views can be held. But there's very little in the book of Galatians about the return of Jesus. It doesn't the, the, the eschatology, to use that language, but the idea of God's return doesn't show up yet. So there are awesome pastors and there's awesome writers behind each of these views. And I was even adjusting kind of where I stood as I was preparing, but this is what I would say for right now, kind of my tentative position, but for the sake of what we're doing, I think the second view makes the most sense. Um, it could certainly be the third. I do not think it's the first uh, but I think the second view makes sense because there could be this group of or believing Jews who are in that congregation who feel as if they must go back. This is actually the same concern that happens in the book of Hebrews. We've got to go back. We've got to go back. We've got to go back. And I think in a sense, Paul might be offering encouragement. The Israel of God being those who are truly Israel, who truly believe in the Messiah. Now, again, again, this is uh, a tentative conclusion, right? Sometimes when you read things, and you're like, I'm not sure, and there's a smattering, to use that word smattering, of views. But what we know for sure is this. All who walk in accordance with this view, that God sent his Son into the world, that through faith in him we have life, all who live according to this view are recipients of God's peace and his mercy because of what Jesus has done for us. And so finally, right? idea number one, take gospel clarity seriously. Idea number two, recognize that compromise exposes hypocrisy. Number three, boast only in Jesus. And then number four, cling to grace in whatever it brings. In a sense, Paul's writing off the Judaizers. He says this, For now on, let no one cause me trouble. The Judaizers, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. <clears throat> then he ends, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Paul's writing off the Judaizers. He's done. They're not going to cause me problems anymore. They're avoiding persecution, but I bear on my body, his physical body, the marks of Jesus, meaning that he has actually suffered persecution for what he believes, and he's fine with that. He is fine with that, because he knows it identifies him more closely in this life with his Lord. He would much rather be beaten for Jesus than applauded for forsaking him. That really should be how all of us view our walks with the Lord. I would rather lose my job, I would rather lose my life, I'd rather lose my family to obey the Lord than to gain all of those things and not have the Lord. This theme shows up throughout Scripture, doesn't it? So Paul goes, I'm not worried about the Judaizers. My body shows who I'm following. And then I love how he ends it. Because remember how he began this letter? I am astonished! 
that you have left the message that you heard so quickly. But he ends with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers. He ends holding out hope that the, that the Galatians are clinging to the Lord Jesus. And I think it's so important for us to recognize this. I think it's so important to realize that even if we have hard conversations with people, even if we write a difficult note, we still, right, what does he do? He still comes on the back end and says, the grace of Jesus be with you. He's not declaring them gone. He's not writing off the Galatians. He is writing off the Judaizers. He wants nothing to do with them. But throughout the letter, he's held out hope, and he's encouraged the Galatians, even in their wandering and their meandering, he's encouraged them to look to Jesus and to cling to grace we all need to do that.